You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 to 19. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, Lord God, among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament reading and sermon text for today is out of Romans 16. Romans 16, verses 1 through 14. A spectacular set of greetings. Uh, okay, one amendment. We're going to read 1 through verse 22. Okay. 16. 1 through 22. My Greek is a little rusty, so here we go. I commend you, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Apenetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachius. Greet Apelles, who has approved, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. 
Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegian, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent, as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosis Potter, my kinsmen. I... Tertius, who wrote this letter to you, greet you in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, you've been so kind to us. Um, And yet we take it for granted. You've given us this whole book, Romans. You've given us this whole Bible. The the word that you speak to us. to, To know what you demand of us. To know what you call us to. To know... Um, for us to know what you're like and what you've done for us in the work of Jesus, the promises that have been guaranteed to us through the work of Jesus. It is a marvel that you've spoken to us with, with such clarity. And so God, may we treasure these words, may we love these words, may we not once take these words for granted, but God, may we, um, because we love you, because we long to be with you, because we long to walk in your ways and to know you, may we thus treasure these words, all of them, even strange lists of names and greetings of people that we don't know. God, help us to discern what it is that you would say to us even here. So we ask these things in your name. We ask now that you would take up your word and bless us. In your name we pray, amen. So we're coming now to our final two sermons in the whole book of Romans. We've been in Romans now for uh, a long time. Three years? A long time. Two years. Three years. A long time. It's the only thing you really need to know. We've been here for a really long time. And, uh, and, and so this week we're going to um, cover this uh, last kind of section of greeting. Um, and then uh, next week, uh, because a lot of us will be out of town, we're going to actually take that week off from Romans. And then we're going to come back. And the first week of Advent, we're going to kick off the whole season of Advent um, by pulling together and wrapping up. Um, the book of Romans with the, the doxology that closes out this marvelous, marvelous book. But today, um, we're going to look at uh, a, a section of Romans that's often overlooked. It's often kind of leapt over um, and, uh, and, uh, and pulled together with a section that is um, often emphasized. And actually, I, I see as a highly important kind of indicator to some of the main ideas that Paul wants to thrust upon us um, through this whole book. It is, I would say, primary pastoral concern um, for the Christians in Rome. And as we do so, what we're going to find is at the heart of this text um, something that the Bible does lots of. 
Um, the Bible calls us into apparent contradictions. It, it calls us into standing in these places of tension um, that, that seem to us, at least in kind of worldly ways of thinking, to be uh, irreconcilable. Um, and so I want to point out the, the two that are at the heart of this text right here at the beginning so that we can kind of interweave our observations about this text with the tension um, the apparent contradiction that, that Paul is actually calling us on into in this um, text. And so, um, particularly verses 17 through 20, there are two apparent contradictions that we've got to learn to live in the middle of. And they are this. First, division and unity. For the sake of unity, division is essential. And so in this text, Paul calls the church, the brothers and sisters... Um, this glorious unity that he's just described by naming names and, and describing the nature of that unity in the paragraph before the paragraphs before he, he says that in order to avoid those who are divisive, you must stay away from them. In other words, to avoid the divisions that will be wrought by these false teachers, make sure you divide from them. So there is an apparent contradiction. Um, something that that a lot of people would look at and go like. Well, by dividing from them, aren't you being one of them? And yet Paul calls us into the middle of it, and there's an insight here that we have to grasp. And the insight is that for the sake of unity, division is essential. But for the sake of maintaining the bond of peace, and particularly where that bond of peace lies, and we're going to talk about that um, by making some observations about his greetings in the paragraph before, it is absolutely essential that we draw lines. And one, one of the, the, the ways that we understand those lines can be seen in the other apparent contradiction, which is contained in verse 20, where Paul says, the God of peace, the peaceful God, will soon crush, destroy Satan under your feet. Here is a God who is the God of peace. He establishes shalom. He establishes his peace on the earth. How does he do so? He goes to war. So again, an apparent contradiction. How can the God of peace be the God who makes war? The tension I believe God calls us into in the midst of this is for the sake of unity, there must be the right kinds of divisions. And for the sake of peace, we must go to war. So those are the two tensions at the heart of this text. Um, I want to kind of take some time now looking at or make some observations about the greetings in verses 1 through 16 before we come back to and kind of do a deep dive in verses 17 to 20. I mean, I think one will illumine the other. So so, um, the greetings and the nature of those greetings... I think will help us to understand these tensions or apparent contradictions that are there in verses 17 to 20. And so we have a list of 27 names here in Romans 16. Um, and, and attached to those names are greetings. In fact, we have more people than are named in this text. because He says people that belong to certain households. So he goes beyond even just naming names, um, but he speaks to a whole bunch of people and he greets them. 
And this is his way of wrapping up his letter uh, and another way of saying, hey, like, I know who you people are. I'm, I'm, he was told us last week his intention is to go to Rome, to go to the church in Rome, to raise money from the church of Rome, and to be sped along on his way um, to Spain in the hopes of going to the ends of the earth to declare the reign and the authority and the work of Jesus. But he lists 27 names, and so I want to make some observations about these greetings and the importance um, that we can kind of glean from what's listed here in these 16 verses and even on the other side of that middle paragraph in 17 to 20. First, um, it, it's important to notice he mentions multiple households, multiple churches that are meeting in households. So when you think of the church in Rome, you shouldn't think of a giant room like this one uh, where everybody through the whole city comes and gathers in a room um, and that's the church in Rome. Instead, uh, at that time, churches didn't, didn't own buildings. They didn't have um, uh, church buildings or cathedrals or anything like that in Rome. Instead, what they had was likely um, ch- a bunch of churches, clus- a cluster of churches, gathering in different, ki- different households throughout the city. Um, and so in a time and an age when um, the church wasn't given passport to own property, um, they couldn't have buildings at the time, um, who Paul is addressing in this letter is a whole bunch of different house churches that are scattered throughout the city of Rome. And um, what's likely to happen is this letter is being sent there. He's probably in Corinth as he's writing this letter. And he's sending that letter, this letter, via a woman named Phoebe, that we're going to look at here in a second, um, via Phoebe to these churches to then be passed around to prepare all of the churches in Rome to then receive Paul when he comes there. And so... Um, we, we would advocate for, we would promote, I think by extension of that, our longing as a church is to see lots of churches planted in our city. See lots of faithful churches that, that are working together, are knit together by a kind of unity that we'll examine here in a minute. A, a unity that is in the Lord, a unity that is in Jesus, where we seek to see our city reflect the city of God, to see our city worship Christ. And it will take far more than just one room this size, packed to the gills perhaps, um, but more than just one room, but lots and lots of rooms all over the city of, uh, of churches gathered and centered in a confession of faith about the work of Jesus and the person of Jesus committed to declaring his reign and his glory. And so one of our ambitions, one of our hopes as a church is to be a part of starting churches, supporting churches, gathering churches, uniting churches in our city around this common cause, namely the name and the work of Jesus. So that's the first thing I would observe that I think we can take away from this list of names and one of the things to kind of understand about the nature of the church in Rome just by looking at this name, this list of names. Second, personal relationships for Paul matter greatly. He's talking about people he knows and loves and has worked with and has been imprisoned with. Um, th- this church doesn't function for him merely as some sort of like institu- kind of cold, distant institution. It is filled with people that he knows and loves and has suffered with and has suffered for. People who have supported him. People who have cared for him. And so at the, at the heart of what it means to belong to the church is not merely a service where we gather. Although um, I think one of the things that we've seen, particularly in Romans 12, is the centrality of the church gathered in the name of Christ um, to, to worship, to, to um, hear the word proclaimed, to, to, to be, have our minds transformed by that word, um, and to gather at this table. 
Um, but that should never replace um, the call that we would know one another, that we'd walk together as brothers and sisters, that there are real relationships with real people who care for one another, who suffer together, who suffer on behalf of one another, who, who support one another. That the mark of the church, the central mark of the church is our gathered worship in the name of Christ. Um, but as we do so, we should do so as people who love one another, as people who know one another's names. And so that's the second observation I make from this list of names. Third observation. This woman, Phoebe, our sister. I want to make a couple observations about her because she's become, oddly enough, a controversial figure uh, in kind of modern church times. And so I want to talk a little bit about Phoebe. Phoebe. First, um, a couple of ways that she's described in this text. I want you to notice, um, I commend you our sister Phoebe, a servant, um, most of your text should have uh, a little number there beside her name. And if you go down to the bottom, you'll find that that word is the same word for deaconess. Um, and she's a deaconess of the church at Syncre. Now, it's the same word, and here I am kind of fumbling over a name when I was making fun of Justin from behind him in ways that you couldn't hear me as he was fumbling over all the names. Um, but she is uh, the same word for servant or deaconess. It's the same word in Greek. Uh, and it is likely, particularly given the syntax here um, and the way that Paul uses this term generally in his other letters, um, that Phoebe should be understood as a deaconess. Um, she actually serves in the kind of office in the local church. We can uh, eventually we'll get around to 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy to talk about um, what is that office, how did that office function um, but here's a woman functioning in some form or some form of service, um, official service in the church at Sincrae. Um, next, uh, that they are being instructed to welcome her. Um, it's likely that she has uh, been commissioned by Paul to carry the letter to the Romans, to the Roman church. She's the only one named here uh, in this paragraph uh, who's not actually already in Rome. And so Paul has written this letter uh, through his... Um, his scribe, Tertius, and then has given this letter to Phoebe and sent her to Rome. And he's telling this church, commending her to this church, that she should be welcomed by them um, and brought in. Um, And that she should be given whatever she needs by them as she makes her way um, to to Rome and to rest in Rome. And then last, we'll find that she's been a patron of many and of myself as well. Um, She is... uh, she is likely a, a wealthy, single business owner um, in the time of Paul. Uh, and she um, has, for whatever reason, a need to travel to Rome. In traveling to Rome, she's carrying this letter from Paul. Um, and she's been a patron. And so um, th- this word patron doesn't simply mean that she is nice to Paul and nice to the ministry of the church. It, it means that she, as a wealthy businesswoman, um, is wielding her resources, her money, to support Paul financially, to support the local churches financially. Um, She's wielding the wealth that God has granted her uh, to support the ministry and the life of the church. So a couple of things to draw from this. Um, There is in our day uh, a a kind of tepid and I would say boring egalitarianism um, that sees the church and maleness and femaleness as flat realities Um, And that if anyone observes 
or recognizes or demands distinctions between men and women. Um, they're somehow being chauvinistic or sexist or something like that. Um, we absolutely, that's just not our position as a church. Um, egalitarianism is wrong. It's actually very flat and I say boring. Um, it is a failure to recognize that the, the utter and beautiful distinctiveness that God has made us as males and females bearing the image of God together um, in his presence. We are different. And we maintain that that difference matters and it matters all the way down. Um, it is not a matter of worth or value. It's not a matter of bearing the image of God, but it is a distinction, a difference in unity um, that, that by maintaining those distinctions, by maintaining those differences, we actually maintain something that God has endowed humanity with that is beautiful and important and vital. Men and women are different. And those differences should be reflected in the kinds of offices that are recognized in the church, the, the ways that men and women function in the home and in marriage. But that does not mean, and the corollary of that is not then, that women are not to serve and to use their gifts in the life and for the good of the church. I mean, oftentimes as kind of these battle lines have been drawn culturally and in the church, um, the, the error on one side has been um, women should not do anything on the one hand, or on the other hand, there are no distinctions between men and women and how they serve and the offices they can serve in in the life of the church. Both of those are errors. And Phoebe is a prime example of why that's an error. Um, and, and there are actually other, many other places in Paul's writings, um, and he's considered kind of the worst of us in terms of chauvinistic um, sexism. Um, but many other places you can go in Paul's writings that affirm um, very distinctive roles for women in the life of of the church. So as a church, we want to affirm that God has made us male and female, that we are different. Those differences should be expressed in marriage. Those differences should be expressed in society. Those differences absolutely must be expressed in the life of the church and the offices of the church. But we will not be a community that says, therefore, men are the only ones who have value in um, the, the work that is to be done in the life of the church. Okay? Great. So that's an observation about Phoebe. And then two important observations I want to make um, that will lead us directly into the kind of divisive unity that's described for us in verses 17 to 20 um, and the war making that is peaceful that, that's drawn out for us, particularly in verse 20. I want you to notice the nature of these relationships in this entire paragraph. This repeated phrase, in Christ or in the Lord. Um, the, the center of all of these relationships for Paul, the, the defining center of what makes these relationships so vital to Paul, why he's greeting these people, is that they have a kind of unity, um, a togetherness, um, a, a relationship that is grounded in the person and the work of Jesus. Relationships have to be grounded somewhere. We live in a day and age that, that wants relationships merely to be kind of human. And that's okay. But Paul has a kind of relationship with brothers and sisters in this text. That is not just we happen to like bowl at the same time. Or we like the same kind of coffee. Or we root for the same football team. Or we vote for the same political party. 
The the unity that's described here in chapter 16, in this paragraph, the very nature of these relationships is absolutely narrow. (laughs) It is a relationship that is grounded and centered in their common commitment to, their common identity in the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, allegiance to Jesus should be, must be the grounds of a commonly held love for one another, care for one another, and commitment to one another. That's the first thing I want us to see. The reason why you should have friends in this room is not merely because you both have wonderful style sense. You dress well. Should not be that you like the same sports should not merely be that you enjoy bowling. I don't know why I keep bringing up bowling. I don't like bowling, really. I'm not any good at it. No, the, the, the thing that should center and define the nature of your relationships, first and foremost, the thing that Paul keeps going back to, is that there's a common ground in the person and the work of Jesus, an identification with the person and the work of Jesus that supersedes all other common things that drive people together. This isn't to say that you can't have friends who you bowl with. This isn't to say that um, you're not going to have different kinds of friends and different kinds of relationships um, based on other things. It's just to say that the person of Jesus should create a kind of unity within the body of Christ um, that's palatable, that goes beyond all of the other ways that our world tries to create unity. It's grounded in the work, the person of Jesus. The second thing I want you to notice is how vocation-centric this paragraph is. He describes those who have done work with him, have worked alongside of him, those who have worked hard with him or for him, um, those who've been imprisoned with him uh, because of a common work, that those who are well-known among the apostles because they've suffered and they've been in prison for the name of Jesus. There is a centering here, first, in the person of Jesus, uh, but second, in the vocation that God has called all Christians to. Um, there, there is, at the heart of this kind of relationship, um, a, a work that is being done, a recognition that God has called us, not merely to survive, not merely to exist in this world, in this, particularly this secular world, but rather that we are a people who are called in Jesus Christ to be at work, seeing his name lifted up, to see people discipled, to see people brought under the name and the reign and the authority of King Jesus. In other words, the the church is not, again, merely a social club where we all happen to agree, and it's not even merely a club um, where we all identify with the name of Jesus. Rather, it is a people called together in Jesus Christ to labor for his name and his purposes together. Interwoven in this entire paragraph is this centering on the person of Jesus, the, the name of Jesus, identifying with him and what he has accomplished for us. And secondly, is a call to labor in, in the world and in our city and in our neighborhoods for the purposes that he's called us to as a people, as the church. And so we have a kind of unity grounded in the identity of Jesus and the work of Jesus. And we have a a common vocation to to see the name of Jesus exalted and loved and treasured, to see people who don't know him come to know him, to see the the world and, and even our city 
in very tangible ways conformed to the reign and the authority of Jesus over the world. So, Paul then warns these people, these people grounded in an identity in Jesus and called to a kind of vocation, the positive vocation of the kingdom of God, but that positive vocation of the kingdom of God is a putting down, a crushing of the authority of Satan in the world. And as he talks to these people, he warns them about false teachers that will come among them And those false teachers will cause divisions. And how will they cause divisions? By creating obstacles that run counter to the doctrine that they've been taught, that they've received. Doctrine that you could say at some level has been summarized for them in the previous 15 chapters in the book of Romans. And so we have at the heart of this call to unity, a call to divide and to divide over doctrine. So, how do we make sense of this? He says there's going to be people who come among you. Um, and I think in the immediate context, he's saying, hey, there are, uh, as the Jewish people are returning to Rome, as Jewish Christians are returning to the church, everywhere that that's happened, everywhere else in the Roman Empire during Paul's day, um, there has been an immediate tension um, that, that those Jews who weren't Christians, who didn't believe in Jesus, almost every throughout the Roman Empire are stepping into these churches, stepping into these cities, and doing two things. Accusing the church, usually accusing the church of some form of rebellion against the authority of Rome, or trying to introduce a kind of teaching into the church that would create extra-biblical obstacles to coming into the church. Obstacles like circumcision or or certain kinds of food laws uh, that that needed to be observed and obeyed in order to be fully received into the church. But if you think this is uh, merely a first-century unbelieving Jewish problem, uh, you're missing what's actually happening in this text. Over and over and over again in the history of the church, there is this common bend to introduce extra-biblical divisions or extra-biblical obstacles to people gathering in the name of Jesus among the people of God. It just continues to happen. It happens in our day. It's happened rather intensely in our day um, over the course of the last two years. As all kinds of strange racial divisions are introduced or reintroduced, um, ironically reintroduced into the church, um, all, all kinds of obstacles, um, uh, new demands on what it means to, to just even gather in the presence of God, um, placed on us by the magistrate or placed on one another by, by fellow Christians. Introducing again and again extra biblical obstacles and extra biblical divisions. It always happens again and again and again. And Paul is warning us, watch out for those things. Because at the heart of those extra biblical divisions, at the heart of um, those obstacles um, that are not according to right teaching is false doctrine. And and here's the thing where we have to get at um, a, a common misunderstanding in our day. 
It is commonly held that an emphasis on right doctrine is divisive. Paul says that the problem is it's false doctrine that divides. Um, that, that, that what's actually needed is more clarity, greater clarity. Now the problem is, is that greater clarity often um, exposes divisions that are already in play. My wife and I were talking about Council of Chalcedon this morning. And, and here was an attempt by the church to create greater unity by clarifying the, the nature of Christ. But in clarifying the nature of Christ, it actually created a very heavy, irreconcilable rift in the church. In other words, doctrinal clarity at times will appear to create greater division, but all it's really doing is exposing the, the false from the true. All it's really doing is exposing um, uh, where divisions already lay. Um, so, for example, um, we're going to go to Thanksgiving at my wife's family's extended family out in St. Louis next week. And uh, one of my worst surprises upon marrying into this family, I would say it's top three worst surprise. This is a very vulnerable place for our marriage, just to let everyone in on it. Um, Was that my very first Thanksgiving that we spent um, there in the Ozark Mountains, um, I discovered that there was another kind of stuffing besides the bacon-saturated cornbread stuffing that I grew up with. There's a weird thing that they call stuffing that's like kind of sweet and has raisins in it. Raisins that got poofy and weird. Are you guys aware of this kind of stuffing? I think it's common in like foreign pagan lands. In the heartland of biblical Texas though, you simply have bacon. Enormous amounts of bacon cooking for days that you dump the bacon in with the bacon grease into the cornbread. You mix some minor vegetables that get drowned out by the bacon, and then you serve it and cover it in gravy. That's stuffing. That's what you look forward to at Thanksgiving. You eat it once a year, it changes your life. So oftentimes the worst. Um, and that's, that's what you do. Well, I, I go and I discover my first Thanksgiving there um, in the Ozark Mountains at Lake of the Ozarks. That they have this strange substance they call stuffing um, that has raisins in it. It's kind of sweet and uh, it's not savory like bacon savory it's like I've talked too much about stuffing already in the sermon but um, it was bad and I didn't know quite how to bring up my shock at how bad it was Um, because we were dating at the time um, and you don't while you're dating a woman that you hope you think you want to marry you don't then tell your future in-laws that you hate their stuffing Um, But it did turn into later, a year later actually, just a little under a year later, just in preparations for Thanksgiving, um, a rather intense conversation with my wife in which we drew some distinctions, some divisions. And and what we realized in that conversation, as I talked about what good stuffing was like versus what evil stuffing is like, what immoral, unethical, God-belittling stuffing is like, is that um, when we described the distinctions there, when we described this doctrinal distinction um, in the nature of stuffing, um, was not that we created a division, but we exposed one, right? She and I had very different understandings of what good stuffing was. We decided that this shouldn't end our engagement, that we should still get married, but it was a notable division. 
division we could still have unity over. Um, and there are those kinds of divisions in the church. Um, there, there, are, there is a need for a kind of doctrinal clarity that will feel at times, in fact, it will be accused of being divisive, when in fact it's just exposing where divisions already lay. And, and Paul here is aiming at a kind of division that, that needs to be noted, um, and noted in such a way that you say, have nothing to do with these people. There are other kinds of divisions in the church, though. Um, and it's not bad that those divisions be exposed, but there's sometimes divisions in the church, disagreements over um, secondary or tertiary, particularly tertiary issues, um, over which Christians can disagree, and it's okay to recognize those disagreements. It's okay to recognize those divisions and say, and yet we'll still worship together. We'll still eat meals together. We'll still call one another brother and sister. But there are a lot of divisions Divisions that have grown muddier and muddier in our day, over which there should be real division. Over which Paul would say, if someone's doing this, if their teaching, their approach to scripture is actually undermining the the word that's been delivered to you, the doctrine that's been delivered to you, have nothing to do with them. Because in doing so, they're trying to introduce false divisions into the church. Divisions that unravel the church. That's actually one of the most ironic things. Um, You look at kind of famous historic heresies. Um, Arius comes and begins teaching about the nature of Christ in a way that, that runs counter to what we've received in the scriptures. And in doing so, he actually begins to divide up the church in all kinds of horrible, creative ways. What Paul says is there's a kind of division that's right, it's essential, it's necessary. And it's necessary for the sake of unity. And so what I would argue is that there's a kind of theological clarity that's demanded of us by Paul, and it's demanded of us for the sake of unity, of walking together in love with clarity around what we confess and believe to be true about Jesus and about God and about ourselves, about what God is up to in the world. Um, And and this contains for us, and it's hard for us, a a view of truth that is counter to our cultural moment. Our cultural moment, for for, for a large part, has devolved into viewing truth merely as a kind of Um, a claim that is leveraged for the sake of power. If I make a truth claim, for instance, about the distinctiveness of men and women, our culture says that it's actually irrelevant or unknowable whether or not that actually has some sort of objective divine reality attached to it. Um, The only reason I'm saying it is because I'm a white male. I'm simply asserting something or arguing for something or arguing for a certain reading of scripture because I want to have power. The Christian view of truth is very, very different than that. The Christian view of truth says that truth is grounded in the mind of God and spoken and revealed to us um, in a word that God has delivered to us that we should trust and rely upon and submit to. And that what's best for everyone is submission to, to what is true and beautiful and good, believing what is true and beautiful and good. But in our day and age, to make a truth claim is, is a, a thinly veiled Attempt at gaining power or protecting power. Christianity rejects that. Um, Even while acknowledging that people often use truth claims 
to, to, to abuse others and, and simply leverage power. But that's not what truth is, and that's not how truth should be treated. And second, it, it's, a, it's a view of division that runs counter to our cultural moment. Um, it, it is a, a kind of division, a kind of a f- affirmation of dividing along lines that, that um, demand an absolute allegiance to the person and the work of Jesus. That the way that unity is attained, real unity, is not by kind of a giant group hug. Um, in fact, the only kind of unity that creates, kind of this giant cultural group hug, um, is, a, is, a, is chaos. Chaos and frankly a whole bunch of people who hate each other, but smile a lot. That the kind of unity that God actually calls us to is a kind of unity that's clear and precise about what is true. Um, and, and it means affirming that there are real divisions in the world. Divisions that are, are, are put there by God. One of the things that we've tried to emphasize or talk a lot about over the course of the last two years um, is the reality of the antithesis. That there is in the world real good and real evil. Um, there is in the world really two families. Those who belong um, to, as Jesus says, Jesus, the, the, the nice one. Um, um, those who belong to your father, Satan, and those who belong to the father, Abraham, or belong to God. As Paul asserted in, in Romans chapter 5, um, there's those who belong to Adam and those who belong to Christ. There is a division that goes all the way down in humanity and asserting what is true, grounding um, our unity, our understanding of the world in the person and work of Jesus creates a division in the world between good and evil and acknowledging that and pointing to that um, and recognizing that that's simply the way things are. Now, there is a glorious way of repentance. And there is a way, a glorious way, opened by Jesus um, for all to come into the family of Christ. But, but, but we, don't exp- we, we don't create unity by expanding our definition uh, of the family of Jesus or the children of God um, beyond where the Bible does. We want to affirm always the divisions that the Bible affirms. And only those divisions. Last thing, um, it's a vision of, uh, we already saw it, vision of unity that's counter to a cultural moment. The last thing I want to point out um, as we close, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. In scripture, Satan is identified most explicitly in Revelation chapter 12, but, but really throughout scripture um, as a being that has two fundamental purposes, two fundamental roles. He was designed to be kind of the grand district attorney, the grand accuser. And so he does two things all of the time. He deceives and accuses. We see both of those things in the Old Testament. We see it specifically in Revelation chapter 12 with regards to the church. Um, Is that Satan goes about everywhere seeking to destroy. How does he seek to destroy? He seeks to destroy by deceiving and he seeks to destroy by then, in those deceptions, then standing before the God of the universe and accusing. And, and this plays itself out and, and, and manifests itself throughout history in a number of different ways. We've already talked about the, uh, kind of the Jewish establishment that was grounded in Jerusalem, um, and particularly around the temple. And, and they actually would send emissaries um, to the Roman cities uh, to condemn Jewish Christians... Um, Gentile Christians as well, but primarily um, they wanted to cut off Jewish Christians. And and guess how they would do it? They'd show up in cities seeking first to deceive. Hey, to to, to really belong to Christ, you need to to get circumcised. You need to obey the food laws. 
when that wouldn't work, they would then go to the Roman government and bring accusation. And Paul says here, just about 15 years before it unfolds, that God will soon crush Satan under your feet. In 70 AD, the Jerusalem establishment is destroyed as Jerusalem is destroyed and the temple is destroyed. Or you think about Nero. Um, Nero sought to deceive Christians into coming into emperor worship. He, he sought all kinds of ways um, for Christians to kind of come into um, Roman empirical rule after a, peace, a season of peace. Um, he sought to win their allegiance through kind of small compromises with Christianity. <clears throat> when that didn't work, um, he consistently would do horrific things like burning parts of Rome. And then as Rome burns... Um, accusing the Christians in the city of burning the city of Rome. Deception and accusation. Nero is eventually murdered. God will soon crush Satan under your feet. But God doesn't always just destroy and kill to crush Satan. Think of the Roman Empire at large. It's sought in um, even more creative ways to call for and demand and deceive the church throughout the empire um, to come under its rule, to, to obey and to serve the emperor um, as the manifestation of God's authority on earth, that they should submit to Rome as Rome sought to bring peace to all the nations of the earth, seeking to deceive Christians. Um, and when that didn't work, when, when Christians' allegiance, absolute allegiance to the person of Jesus um, couldn't be compromised, um, the, the, the knee-jerk reaction was always then to bring accusation and torture and murder and to kill Christians. But God crushed Satan under their feet is eventually calling Constantine and other emperors um, to die to themselves and become Christians, Christians who honored the work of Jesus in the life of the church. I mean, this is what God has been up to and continues to be up to throughout the history of the world. He is establishing peace for his people by crushing the work of Satan everywhere, but destroying and silencing the accusations and ending the deception. Uh, one of the warnings embedded in this text is um, this language that is used to describe these false teachers who come to deceive and to accuse, to bring division. Um, they are ultimately not serving Jesus. They, they'll, they'll seek to hold up to you that in the end they're all about serving Jesus. They actually are serving their own appetites, their own bellies, literally. They have impulses and desires that they're seeking to find fulfillment in by teaching the church um, to follow after um, these divisive false ways. But here's something else to note. They're filled with smooth talk and flattery. They sound nice. They sound good. And one of the problems in our day is we generally assess teachers by their tone. We assess teachers by how nice they sound. And, and I would just hold out to you that according to Paul here, that is not a good way to assess your teachers. I do that as one who, maybe you don't like my tone. <laughs> you are called to love what is true, to love Jesus. 
um, to listen to teachers who point to Jesus, who point to the scriptures, who point to the word, who call for a unity grounded in the person of Jesus, not those who are smooth talkers, who scratch your ears. Niceness of voice, inoffensiveness of tone, is no measure whatsoever of faithfulness to the word. And Paul grounds that and says, look, um, Satan didn't deceive, Arius didn't deceive, Nero didn't deceive, because um, in such a way that they came out sounding like ogres who wanted to destroy everyone. They sounded kind, they sounded nice. Arius is spoken of as being um, an embodiment of kindness and mercy and niceness. And so he deceived many unto hell. Oh, may we be a people whose allegiance is wholly tied up in the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus and the rule of Jesus and the reign of Jesus who are at work in the world now trusting that God is even now crushing Satan. And where is he crushing Satan? That's the beauty of this. It's not some um, mere spiritual abstraction. It is in and through and under our feet that God is now intending and working to crush the work of the accuser and all the places he manifests himself. To crush the work of the deceiver, not in some abstract universe, but precisely and directly under the feet of his people. As we live faithfully, unified and grounded under the work of Jesus, his reign and his glory over all things. Oh, may we be a people who are in Christ and are pursuing and working at the vocation of crushing Satan and building the kingdom. Let's pray. And so, Jesus, we acknowledge your authority over all things, your beauty, your goodness, your grace. God, may we be bound to that name, bound to the the teaching that we've received from your word. God, may that unify us, may may that um, cause us to work together, to labor together, to suffer on behalf of one another. An allegiance to Jesus and his name, uh, a trusting in your word, um, and a commitment to believe and to work in such a way that we know that Satan's head is even now being crushed again and again and again and again as we bear witness to the good work of Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.